So this evening in the talk, I'd like to reflect on the theme of being embodied, really a continuation of some of the contemplation we've been doing today. But prior to doing that, I think it's very important that we provide a context for the instructions that we've been offering today. So I'd like to base this evening's talk on a story, a teaching story from the time of the Buddha that many of you, of course, will be quite familiar with. But I think it's actually almost a story we should memorize. Says the unlearned, unenlightened being experiences pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. The learned, noble disciple also experiences pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. In this case, monks, nuns, what is the distinction, the contrast, the disparity between the learned, noble disciple and the unlearned, unenlightened being? So that's the question, right? When an unlearned, unenlightened being, monks, encounters unpleasant feelings, He or she grieves, laments, wails, beats their chest, and is distraught and distracted therein. He or she experiences two kinds of feeling, namely in the body and in the mind. It is as if an archer, having fired one arrow into a certain person, were then to fire a second arrow. That person would experience pain from both arrows. Such is the unlearned, unenlightened being, experiencing two kinds of pain, bodily and mental. Moreover, in experiencing an unpleasant feeling, he feels displeasure. Displeased over that unpleasant feeling, latent tendencies to aversion contingent on that unpleasant feeling, are accumulated. Confronted with unpleasant feeling, he seeks or she seeks delight in sense pleasures. Why so? Because the unlearned, unenlightened being knows of no other way out of unpleasant feeling than to seek the distraction in sense pleasures. Delighting thus in sense pleasures, latent tendencies to craving, contingent on those pleasure, pleasant feelings are accumulated. He or she does not know the origin, the cessation, the attraction, the limitation, and the release from those feelings as they really are. Not knowing these things as they really are, latent tendencies to delusion, contingent on neutral feelings, arise. Experiencing pleasant feelings, They are bound to it. Experiencing unpleasant feelings, they are bound to that. And experiencing neutral feelings, they are bound to that. Monks, thus is the unlearned, unenlightened being, bound to birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, bound by suffering. Here's the good news. 
As for the learned noble disciple monks, experiencing unpleasant feeling, he or she neither grieves, laments, wails, nor beats their chest. They are not distressed. They experience pain only in the body, not in the mind. Just as if an archer, having shot one arrow into a certain person, were then to shoot a second arrow but miss the mark, in this case, that person would experience a pain only on account of the first arrow. Such is the learned, noble student, experiencing pain in the body but not in the mind. Moreover, experiencing no displeasure on account of that unpleasant feeling, not being displeased, latent tendencies to aversion do not arise. Experiencing that unpleasant feeling, they do not seek distraction and sense pleasure. Why not? Because the learned noble disciple knows a way out of unpleasant feelings other than distraction in sense pleasures. Not seeking distraction and sense pleasures, latent tendencies to greed do not arise. They know the origin, the cessation, the attraction, the limitation, and the release from feelings as they really are. Knowing these things as they really are, latent tendencies to delusion do not arise. They are not bound to the unpleasant. They are not bound to the pleasant or to the neutral. Monks, nuns, thus is a noble, learned disciple, liberated from birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. They are, I say, liberated from suffering. Thus, monks, nuns, is the distinction, the contrast, the disparity between the learned, noble disciple and the unlearned, unenlightened being. So I'm not quite sure which lot you throw yourself into, but (laughs) this story really is awkward and as archaic as the language is, doesn't really detract from the simple fact that this story provides the context and it provides the framework for the entire path of insight meditation just as this story provides the context and the framework for all mindfulness-based applications. So to actually understand this story, we really do need to examine it in the light of our own experience and to see if this is true for us. We are asked in our practice and in our life to discern the difference between the two darts, not only here, not between the two arrows, not only here in our practice, but of course in the whole of our lives. We're asked to be able to discern the core realities, the core actualities, the simple truths of every moment, and begin to see and understand the extra layers of narrative, of reactivity, of identification, and selfing that are superimposed upon those core actualities. And every moment, actually, with mindfulness, that we are able to discern that difference, to learn the difference between the core actualities and our 
with kindness and curiosity, every moment we can discern that and discern the difference between that, rather than being lost in our narratives, we are actually learning in that moment what it means to bring emotional and psychological distress and pain and suffering to an end. This is a very, this is a learning with some immediacy. We're learning that the skills of transforming the landscape of our own heart and mind, we're learning many lessons in that discernment. We're learning the lessons of balance and resilience. We're learning the lessons of profound acceptance and compassion. Where these are all lessons of insight, and in a very real way, they're all lessons of freedom. Now, when we reflect upon our experience today, we'll probably see that it's in these domains of the two arrows or the two darts that the majority of our attention, our energy, our time, and our preoccupations live. It's where our psychological and emotional energy actually gets invested. It's in these domains of the two arrows where we form our views of the world, our views of other people, and our views of ourselves. So the invitation of this practice and this path is actually to learn that we can, we can know, we can learn how to direct that attention in an intentional, compassionate, and wise way. So I want to look at these two darts, these, these d- domains of the two darts, the two arrows, a little bit separately. So what is the first arrow? Now, this domain of the first arrow basically embraces all our core experience that comes simply with being an embodied human being. The first dart weaves its way through all of our lives, and actually none of us are exempt. The first dart describes the very pervasive and unavoidable condition of being human. I call it the realm of the unarguables. The realm of what we cannot negotiate with. The realm of what we cannot avoid and what in reality we cannot argue with. They are the universal core unarguables. They connect us all Now, I think it's good to kind of draw up a sort of short list of life experience that we simply cannot argue with. The first of these. We will all die. We do not know when. We do not know how. One day we know that each one of us will only live in the memory of another. We do know we are mortal. We do know there is an ending to this life. And we know, actually, on some core level, that it's not negotiable, (laughs) that it is an outcome of being born. 
Now, this is true of all those that we know, those that we love, those that we hate, and all those beings that we don't know. And what we do begin to see is that neither our love and our attachment, nor our dislikes or our rejections of another, make any difference to this unarguable. We live within a body, we are embodied beings. This body knows youth, knows times of health and energy and vitality. Yet we will all unarguably age. We will meet pain. And each one of us is asked in our own way to respond to this inevitable process of being alive and aging. Because it's an ongoing, it's actually an ongoing lesson in loss. Youth, capacity, changes in appearance. I remember some years ago I, I visited a family retreat that I actually started about 28 years ago. And this little girl came up to me and she said, can you skip? I said, of course I can skip. You know, what do you mean you're asking me, can I skip? She said, show me. Well... This was actually really rather a minor disaster. You know, where the, I really just saw the body was not doing what the mind told it to. In my mind, I could skip. The body just didn't know how to do this anymore. Not, not double Dutch, by the way, for those of you who are really, you know, have past expertise in skipping, you know. Um, we all wake up one morning realizing that what was possible for us years ago is now a struggle. Therefore, I had to ask Trish to go and ask, get me some reading glasses just in case. Um, we look back and we see that our capacity to stay up all night, party, uh, and then wake up in the morning after three hours of sleep, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to greet the world, these times are now a distant memory. You know, we wonder, how, where did that go? Where did that go? Certainly my definition of aging is that the periods of time when everything in your body works well at the same moment, those periods of time get shorter and shorter. <laughs> we will all experience pain in this life. We will all experience illness. It's an unarguable they may be life-changing, traumatic illnesses or simple the, the simple symphony of the everyday niggles. It's an unarguable. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. It brings us to the unarguable, the universal, universal reality of change. Now, we all nod our heads very wisely at this. But we don't always know how to live so wisely with the implications and the repercussions of this unarguable, this universal reality that in this life, nothing will stand still. And here too we are asked really to learn with grace and with compassion often lessons of loss. And if we're wise, we learn in this unarguable, the lessons of letting go. We look at everything in our life, 
And we really do see that nothing is fixed in place, that nothing will stand still. There is nothing, no one, and no one that we can actually keep, that we can actually hold on to, that will stay the same, not the lovely, not the terrible. This, this reality of change, I think, is truly a vast, unarguable. Sometimes we welcome those changes, of course, particularly when we benefit from them. I really love the ending of a root canal. I'm so happy about impermanence. I just delight in it. I'm not so happy when the sun that shone yesterday doesn't come out today. Yet our wanting and our not wanting change, it really doesn't make any difference, does it? We could all have very philosophical conversations about impermanence. But the very real question is, do we live an embodied understanding of impermanence? We live in a fleeting world. Sights, sounds, thoughts, people, sensations, emotions, coming and going, being born and dying, arising and passing. Our perception of stability is only that. It's only a perception. We realize there's very little amongst this, uh, very little amongst this ever-shifting landscape that we're actually in charge of, that we're actually in control of. We can't legislate how our body will change. We can't legislate and determine how other people will change. We're actually really not in charge of it. We can't determine that, you know, the kind of mind state that we experienced yesterday that will return to us tomorrow. We can't determine and control that from here on in, we will only have pleasant thoughts and people and sensations and sounds and tastes and touch in our life. We simply cannot do this. We stand on shifting sands and we too are perpetually shifting. What we see in the world outwardly and inwardly is a kaleidoscope of ever-intermingling process and conditions, coming together in different shapes, different forms, moment to moment, unfolding and interacting with each other. There's another uh, dimension of the unarguables I'd like to bring into this, this discussion. That in this life we live, we will all be asked to embrace our own measure of disappointment. That sometimes, sometimes life just doesn't turn out the way that we hoped or the way that we expected. We lose people we love or they will change in ways at times that's hard to accept. We can't be entirely as the Buddha discovered. None of us can be ever entirely successful, no matter what we have, no matter how strong our defenses. We cannot be entirely successful in dissociating ourselves from the way things actually are. 
Sometimes we get what we want, other times we don't. Our expectations may be disappointed. And no one, no matter how much they love us, can entirely fix things for us. Disappointment can sound like very bad news. I think in this path, in this teaching, disappointment is sometimes seen quite differently because it's sort of drop, lifting the shades. It's lifting the veils and actually can be really the beginning of a very deep commitment to awakening, to finding an inner refuge an inner stability, an inner resilience, an inner island, as the Buddha put it. When we look at the unarguables, they can seem rather bleak or rather depressing. But they can be the beginning for us of a path of investigation, of awakening and compassion. It's really good to see that our value judgments of good and bad and right and wrong really don't make a scrap of difference to these unarguables. It's a great gift to offer to ourselves to actually really be willing to put down that kind of value judgment about them. None of this is our fault. It's not because we didn't do something right. It's not because we didn't try hard enough. If we meet pain in this life, it's not because somehow we failed. It is about learning to meet things as they actually are. Now, this brings us to the second dart. Now, the Buddha used a word for this, which is very, very difficult to translate into English. The word is dukkha. Sometimes described as dis-ease, an absence of ease, an absence of well-being, a quality of distress. Now, one thing we need to see is that dukkha pervades and permeates every structure and aspect of all of our lives. Certainly, dukkha describes the first art, one of the unarguables, But dukkha also describes the second dart, which is the optional suffering, the optional distress. Dukkha, as the Buddha described it, is something to be understood. It's something to be met. It's something to be examined in our lives. Now, the first dart, actually, is where many people's path of insight practice or of mindfulness actually begins. In that experience of pain, of change, of loss, of disappointment, in the moments when actually we stop fleeing from it, for many people, and I'm sure this is true of many of your clients and patients, when you realize the moment has come to actually meet our lives. To meet what is. 
It is the beginning, uh, then, of learning to live an intentional life. Because we all know the ways that we can turn away from the first start, don't we? We all know the ways that we can, we can try to avoid or just simply distract ourselves from that domain of the first arrow. When we begin to live an intentional life, it is the moment that we begin to turn towards what we have previously turned away from. Because sometimes there's a whole load of insight in that, in that in itself. Because we see that the tendency to turn away, to, to reject, to dissociate from the first start, can have some pretty major catastrophic consequences for ourselves. And indeed for the world that we live in. The first start can be painful, but the second start... Remember the story. The second art is where torment is born. It's where anguish is born. It's where anger, resistance, struggle comes into being. The second art, of course, is the narrative about the first art. The second art is the place, is our reactions, our obsessions, our ruminations. It is the home of fear, of guilt, of shame, of blame, of depression. The second art is what happens when we place ourselves in a state of argument with the first, with the unarguables. Placing ourselves in a place of argument with the unarguables can only, I think, ever have one outcome, you know, which is a considerable amount of stress and tension and distress. Now, this placing ourselves in a state of argument with the unarguables, of course, is what happens in the absence of mindfulness and in the absence of investigation. We don't actually mindfully cling and identify. We don't actually mindfully get lost in aversion or fearfulness or judgment or resentment. What we actually see is in all of that is the arising of some of the most deeply ingrained and embedded tendencies and emotional habits of our life, conditions that have run through our life. There, our first response to the first art is are these habitual reactions. As the Buddha put it, in the face of the first art, in the face of the unarguables, there's a whole number of different pathways of response or reaction open up. Some of them lead lead to the end of suffering and some of them lead to further suffering. And when he looked at the first layer of reactions to the first art, the unarguables, you know, he talked about anger, you know, rejection, you know, blame. He talked about despair, you know, the way that life is unfair and why did this happen to me. Talked about all of these levels of reactivity that actually have only, which actually have only serve, first of all, to compound the suffering and the pain of the first art. But actually these reactions are painful in themselves. Aversion is suffering. Rejection is a quality of suffering. You know, blame and despair is suffering. It is not only a reaction to suffering, it is an experience of suffering itself. 
We don't always know how to bring our wise and mindful attention, kind and compassionate attention to the moments of loss, illness, death, unwelcome changes that we experience. We don't always know how to bring the, a mindful awareness into the moments when our worlds seem to crumble. What we tend to do is to turn away feeling like this is just too much to bear, or, or we begin to ruminate, or wallow, or struggle against, or we begin to, we may despair to feel that it's all unendurable, un, un, un that we begin to drown on it. These are very familiar, familiar pathways, but there's an even more familiar pathway when we meet pain, which is agitation. How am I going to fix it? How am I going to fix it? How am I going to make this go away? How am I going to find the solution? And if everything else fails, we just distract ourselves. Sometimes we spend, a person rejects us and we spend hours trying to figure out what we've done wrong or perhaps we were just unlovable in the first place. Someone we love dies and this painfulness in grief is a very human, natural painfulness. But then we can actually get into another story of unfairness, as if death should never touch us. We lose our certainties at times in life. Perhaps our world begins to crumble in some way, and we get so frenzied in our activity to, to fix it. We recognize these reactions. Or, here we offer another option. This is the option you bring into the lives of the people that you work with. We bring it into our own lives. The possibility of walking another pathway, to learn new skills, to learn a new responsiveness rather than the reactivity. We can learn to stop and to pause, to breathe out and to acknowledge this very pain, this very sorrow that feels almost to threaten to destroy us is probably also the ground where we're going to learn the deepest lessons of acceptance and compassion and balance and kindness in our life, to learn the ways to free ourselves from the second arrow. I would say that this path of mindfulness actually begins in those moments when we can pause and stop in the very midst of the difficult, the very midst of uncertainty, and to turn towards it and the willingness to know it is as it is. That's not a statement of resignation. It's not a statement of passivity. It is as it is. There's something actually quite profound in that. It's almost a profession of our willingness to stand in the midst of our lives and to embrace the whole of our lives. For me, that statement is really a profession of a very radical acceptance. It is as it is. Someone spoke about their experience when they became quite deeply, deeply ill unexpectedly. And she said, the moment that I could stop asking, why is this happening to me? And instead could say, why would this not happen to me? That that was the moment that healing 
could begin. That it is as it is. At the very heart of this path of mindfulness and awakening, the, very, the, the key, I might say, first step of mindfulness is where the Buddha suggested we establish mindfulness within the body. That we learn what it means to be truly embodied. embodied. The Buddha even suggested that without mindfulness of the body, there is no mindfulness at all. It is certainly, as you all know, the very first step in mindfulness-based applications. This is what you invite the people you work with to do. Let's stop. Let's see what's happening in the body. Let's see if we connect can connect in the bo- with the body. So it's very useful to ask then ourselves, why is so much emphasis given to mindfulness of the body? Well, one of the first things probably that we recognize is our tendency to be disembodied, as we've spoken about today, except when there's no choice. You've noticed like when, you know, your body is screaming at you in pain or illness. It's like, you know, you don't have any choice. Distraction doesn't really work. But even then, we're not truly embodied necessarily with mindfulness and compassion. We're embodied with reluctance. Where do we live when not in the body? Where, where is our attention when we are not embodied? Usually in our minds, in our stories, our narratives. We inhabit the imagining of the future, the remembering of the past, the commentaries about the present. We often live in those stories and those constructions and perceive the world through them. If you notice probably today, how we have a story about just about everything. You know, sight, a sound, you know, the simplest thing, and there we go, you know, building the world with our commentaries. We can live with fear and anxiety about what might be, planning, should be. We barely notice, actually, in all of the commentary and the narrative, how the body continues to sit, continues to walk, continues to feel continues to hear, continues to breathe, continues to touch the ground. And that is always a present tense experience. In the body, there's not the endeavor to experience the next moment. We don't experience next year's broken leg. We don't actually experience the root canal of two years ago. We actually don't experience this. The body lives here. It lives now and this learns in this, this moment. And here we're learning the difference between the two darts. Because we're learning to discern the difference between this very somatic felt experience of the body which can only actually be felt, can only actually be known, responded to in this moment, 
And we're learning the difference between that felt experience, of course, and the cognitive world of constructions, descriptions, uh, the narrative about this moment's experience. On a very basic level on mindfulness practice, we're learning to discern the difference between the sensations in the body and our story about them. This is a training for our life. We're learning to discern the difference between a sound and our story about it, between a sight and our story about it, between our, our, the, our encounter, our immediacy of our encounter with another person and our story about them. One of my earliest teachers, he had this wonderful saying, he said, the story, your thought of your mother is not your mother. It's quite interesting. (laughs) The thought of your mother is not your mother. The thought of your knee is not your knee. The thought of of the sound is not the sound. This is truly a training for our life. By learning to attend to this more somatic experience, we're actually learning to bring this present moment experience into focus. This is one of the effects of mindfulness, is to bring the present moment experience into focus, to know it, to meet it. The body's not imagining a future, not regretting a past. It feels And we're learning to be with what is the actuality rather than the imagining. To turn towards... This is a lesson, one of the first lessons in mindfulness for me is this lesson of willingness. The willingness to turn towards. The second lesson of mindfulness for me is the lesson of capacity. Learning how to train our minds, how to incline our minds towards staying with what is, towards staying what is present. And you probably all appreciate today today that this is a training. There is a level of capacity in developing sustained attention. We're learning and turning to what is. To learning, we're learning when we come back to the body, we're always coming back from somewhere. We're coming back from our imagining. We're coming back from our speculations. We're coming back from our plannings. We're coming back from our our apprehensions. And in coming back to the body from somewhere else, the subtext in this is this is a lesson in learning how to let go. This is a lesson in learning how to release and to inhabit this body. And as we've said today, we don't just do this once. We do it maybe a thousand times in a single sitting or in a single walking. But every time we're doing this, there is so much, it is actually an embodiment of insight. It's an embodiment of freedom because we're learning to release the world of imagining, the world of constructions, and to come back to learn how to inhabit this moment, this body as it is. We have seen, you know, when we look at what pulls us away from this present moment embodiment, we actually see that what pulls us away is often not just frittering superficial thoughts. Often what pulls us away are some of these most deeply established tendencies towards forgetfulness. Tendencies towards forgetfulness. We want to distract ourselves. We want to be elsewhere. The tendency to want to explain what is happening, to judge, to live apart 
in some way from this body and this moment. So in the midst of this, we're actually developing a sense of capacity to be able simply to train a level of intentional attention rather than the habit of inattentiveness, rather than the habit of forgetfulness. And by our willingness to come back to this body, something else is happening. You may not have seen this so immediately today, but you will see it over the time of the retreat. By that willingness to come back, we're actually beginning to slow the process of constructing down. We're beginning to slow the process of building those narratives down. And we begin to see them being born. We begin to see the narratives of frustration, of fantasy, of aversion, and something else is happening here. We begin to see a thought as a thought. You know, we're training ourselves to see a sensation as a sensation. We begin to see a thought as a thought and discover that we have a choice. That we have the choice, we begin to have the choice rather than being driven to inhabit the habits of inattention. We may have a choice about what we pay attention to. It's like not volunteering for suffering. That we can come back to sense, to feel, to breathe. Training our capacity moment to moment. Something else is going on in this practice of being mindful of the body is that we're learning to listen. We're learning to listen to the messages of the body with sustained attention. Now that learning to listen is really a, mo- a means of stepping out of our more familiar mode of um, fixing, doing, um, reacting, and we're learning to inhabit a more curious, receptive, embodied mindfulness, grounded in the simple reality of this body's felt experience. This is such a radical shift in attitude in our lives and in our minds to inhabit that that mode of receptivity because we see the mode of fixing and doing primarily revolve around the reactions of aversion and agitation. In learning to inhabit a more receptive presence, actually we come to be a more conscious participant in the unfolding experience of the body. And this is a movement, I think, into one of the very primary attitudinal locations or or foundations of mindfulness, which is to turn towards, to befriend, to be curious about what is going on, to listen inwardly, to learn how to bring that attitude of welcoming, of embracing, even of that which is difficult. That attitude of befriending has also some effect on beginning to calm the narrative down. 
Developing our capacity to be more deeply embodied, rooted in the ground of this body experience, we actually learn that we can choose what we pay attention to and how we pay attention. And we begin to somehow unpack experience. We begin to unpack experience. There is a remarkable freedom in beginning to investigate. You probably notice how easily we shift into the mode of selfing and identification. We have these statements, you know, I feel terrible. You know, I feel sick. You know, I'm inadequate. I'm unlovable. Now, these are descriptions of states. What mindfulness is actually asking us to do is actually to come out of the world of descriptions and states and move into the world of process. Move into the world of process, into the world of verbs. Uh, Into the world of verbs, yes, process. So instead of moving into these states, these descriptions, what we examine, when we look at the body, what do we see? We see change, we see fluidity, we see process. We learn the lessons in that, about that same fluidity, that same change, that same process within all of our constructions. Then our descriptions make no sense because our descriptions are about conclusions, not about process. By learning to bring those investigative skills that we learn in the body into the mind, we're actually learning to ease this tendency towards identification. It is not the body that makes us suffer. It is not the thought that makes us suffer. It is not the experience of the moment that really causes suffering. What really brings about the most profound suffering is that level of identification of I am. This is who I am. Moment to moment, moving into this more embodied life is really learning those profound lessons that are brought into all dimensions of experience. Learning to bring the present moment into focus. Learning to illuminate this moment with mindfulness. Learning within the body the lessons of change and process. Learning within the body the lessons of non-clinging, of non-identification, and perhaps profoundly learning within the body the lessons of kindness, compassion, and acceptance. We're learning the lessons in the body to discern the difference between the two darts. So as the Buddha put it, you know, this, this experiencing only of one dart, not the dart of the torment that is added. It is a lesson about, it's a moment-to-moment lesson about bringing suffering to an end, learning to deepen as human beings really capable of very profound spaciousness and courage and kindness. So, we sit, we breathe, we touch the ground, and we learn to be embodied. So if we have just a moment quietly together and then we will move into a walking period.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.